the U.S. government says Alex is no longer eligible to um, to adjust because of Carly or, or for any other reason, if um, unless he leaves the country and accrues at least 10 years time outside of the country mm. and then goes through another application process with all sorts of... Which could take years. Yeah. It's just like, I don't understand why they can't, you know, give him the option to stay because, I mean, all they're doing is taking a perfectly good household and ripping it apart. This is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Carly Garcia's husband, Alex, had been living in Poplar Bluff, Missouri when he moved to St. Louis three years ago. He was a married man, a father of five. His wife and his kids are all American citizens, but he is not, and immigration authorities told him to report to be deported. Well, instead, he came to St. Louis and he sought sanctuary in Christ Church United Church of Christ in Maplewood. He's been living there ever since. And joining me to talk about it is his wife, and that is Carly Garcia. Carly, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. And we're also joined today by Sarah John. She's the executive director of the St. Louis Interfaith Committee on Latin America. Sarah John, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Sarah, can you give us the short version of a very complicated legal saga? What got Alex Garcia to the point of ICE seeking his deportation three years ago? Yeah, so thank you. That's, a, a, as you said, a complicated question. But I think the simple answer is that Alex, like millions of others, um, has uh, entered this country more than one time or in their initial attempts, right, like crossed the border, got deported, came back, removed. You know, it, it is um, seldom, in my experience, sort of like a one and done sort of um, sort of situation, mm-hmm. which could take us down to a longer conversation about um, how we have constructed border policy and laws um, since the early 90s and arguably before that. Mm-hmm. But um, so Alex um, came to this country um, uh, o- almost 20 years ago and um, and, you know, shortly thereafter, I think, uh, met Carly and fell in love and um, they were going about their life. And um after they got married, they did, you know, they, they followed all the right steps. They were doing everything the right way. Um, they found an attorney. They were trying to figure out what paperwork they needed to file so that Carly could adjust Alex's status mm-hmm. um, um, since Carly's a U.S. citizen. And so um, then they had an unfortunate conversation with Nicole Cortez, who is the, um, their attorney is also the co-founder of the MICA Project, the Migrant and Immigrant Community Action Project. And she kind of said, look, um, Alex is in a situation where, like, again, like millions of others, Mm -hmm. where he has what's called the permanent bar, right? So based on U.S. law, um, because he has been removed and reentered, the short answer is the U.S. government says, well, Alex is no longer eligible to... um, to adjust because of Carly or, or for any other reason, if um, unless he leaves the country and accrues at least 10 years time outside of the country mm. and then goes through another application process with all sorts of... Which other... could take years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I think it's also helpful, Sarah, to mention or to think about um, 
what going back to Honduras looks like. And we've spent um, some time last week looking at what um, what has happened in Honduras in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm sure some of your listeners are much greater experts on Honduras than I am. Um, but there has been a coup d'etat. There has been a repressive, aggressive, violent dictatorship um, and and going back to that country um, in the place that Alex grew up and the, the way his family, uh, some of his family still live there, um, doesn't um, seem to be a viable option for him mm-hmm. or certainly not for their five children. So, Carly, it, it all feels very hopeless, but claiming sanctuary, what Alex did, this is such a bold move. Do you remember when you first heard about the option where he would claim sanctuary and, and basically take up residence inside a church? Um, well, when I first heard about it, I I was very unsure of it because, you know, to me, it was a huge move that I was scared of. You know, I was going to be depending on people, strangers that I've never met to, you know, to help keep my husband safe. Mm -hmm. So sanctuary was in the beginning, not an option for me. And then I got to thinking, you know, what, what is the option? You know, the, the only other option other than sanctuary was for him to leave the country Mm -hmm. and to be gone for for 10 years, not just that he'd have to leave. I mean, that's a long time. 10 years isn't even guaranteed. I mean, there's not even a guarantee that he would be able to come back, rather it be, you know, he survived going back to Honduras or rather our government allow him to come back in the 10 years. Mm -hmm. So it's not even a guarantee if he was to leave the country that he would be able to come back to us. Mm -hmm. And having five children, I mean, that's, that's not, we can't do that. We can't afford to, to travel back and forth to Honduras, you know, travel expenses would be outrageous. And I mean, he's a perfectly good husband, a perfectly good father, hardworking man. And, you know, he pays his taxes. He, he, you know, helps the community when he can. And it's just like, I don't understand why they can't, you know, give him the option to stay because I mean, all they're doing is taking a perfectly good household Mm -hmm. and ripping it apart. And, and Carly, when he came up here to move to Saint to, to move into this church in in Maplewood, um, did you ever imagine that he would still be there, living in that church three years later? Not at all. Yeah. I did not think it was going to take this long. You were hoping that there would be a lifeline. Yes. Sarah, tell us this this idea of taking sanctuary in a church. I remember when I first heard about Alex's case three years ago, it was hard to get my head around. It was like, wait, a, a person moves into a church, and at that point, the federal government doesn't move in to arrest them. What are the roots of this movement of, of saying, hey, here's how we're going to handle what, what we feel like is an injustice? Well, I um, I also was not an expert, and nor do I consider myself to be an expert on this very ambiguous um rather thin protection. Um, I, I think um, I think what's helpful when we look at sanctuary, what's helpful to understand is that um, in some ways, um, what we're doing is holding up, using this tool as a way to hold up the moral dilemma that we are confronted with in how immigration policy 
um, is functioning in the United States today. So what that sort of to get into a little of the specifics, what it means is that there's an internal memorandum from Immigration and Customs Enforcement. So this came, um, the current governing memo is uh, from just a few years ago under the Obama administration. There have been um, several memos of this kind, um, at least since I, I think I've heard since the early 90s. Um, hmm. But uh, but basically the memo says to immigration agents, um, you should try not to conduct enforcement activity in sensitive locations. Hmm. And then it enumerates five sensitive locations, which includes places like schools, hospitals, and houses of worship, right? And so I think some of us could um, could look at the, at least this most, most recent um, sensitive locations memo and look at how you see Congress having been debating um, comprehensive reform and other immigration reforms for, oh, 15 years at least, <laughs> uh, and not coming up, coming to any solution. I'm looking at the executive branch being able to say, okay, well, what do we do to sort of stand uh, to stand in the middle, right? Where yes, it needs to be from Congress. What's our responsibility in the meantime? Let's try to um, at least keep people safe in some of these um, sort of or origin story of democracy, right? The right to freedom of speech, <laughs> the the right to worship, right? Think of those sort of like bill. Um, the, the constitutional founding principles, right? So so people should be able to worship without being afraid that they were going to be prosecuted or persecuted while they're there. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what the sensitive, um, sensitive location sort of like um, tool behind it is just an internal memo. I, w I will also just share briefly that the memo is about three pages long. Um, so as you can imagine, that does not provide a lot of detail. Mm -hmm. It's also just a memo, right? So we have seen um, prior to Alex entering sanctuary and certainly in the last three years, um, ways that the federal government has sort of chipped away at those slim, already slim protections. Um, and like many other memos, um, <laughs> those can change. And so I think what um, what many of us feel and believe, and certainly when you um, meet the people of Christ Church, this is also um, an expression of their held deeply, profoundly held beliefs about how we need to treat other people. And so offering sanctuary and standing with Carly and Alex um, in this moment of injustice um, is inseparable to how they live into their Christian values. We're talking today to Sarah John. She's the executive director of the St. Louis Interfaith Committee on Latin America. We're also joined today by Carly Garcia, and her husband, Alex Garcia, has claimed sanctuary in a Maplewood church that's in order to resist deportation to Honduras. Carly, I understand you recently moved to St. Louis along with your kids. Was this uh, an effort to get closer to Alex to be able to see him more frequently? Um, yeah, it me and three of our children moved to St. Louis. Two of our children are still in Poplar Bluff living with their mother. Um, but my move to St. Louis was due to my health. Um, the separation of Alex, the stress driving back and forth um, mm -hmm. every weekend. Um, that's, you know, three hours one way. Does it add a, a um, different kind of to, stress to, to be so far from home and, and be with people that you didn't know well prior to this whole situation? It, it is. Um, all of it has has definitely taken a toll on me um, and my health. Um, the stress has been really hard. 
um, mostly because, you know, I've never left Poplar Bluff. So mm-hmm. leaving everything I've ever known um, to come here to St. Louis was really hard. Uh, very welcoming. Um, St. Louis has been good to me um, and, and our family. Um, I have very, very huge thanks to, to the St. Louis community um, and the support that they have shown for our family. But um, I mean, it, it has been very hard for me, um, but we did move up here to try to help eliminate some of that stress. Mm-hmm. But I mean, either way, it's it's still stressful because we're still not together, you know. We've always been a blended family. Uh, you know, he it's it's not a you know the wife does this and the husband only does this. You know, we're a partnership. We're we're equal. You know, everything I do, he does, and vice versa. Um, and that's how we raise our kids. And right now, it's been like um, just a single fam- single parent household, and mm-hmm. and it's been really hard and it's been really stressful. And I've been trying to find ways to juggle, you know, being a single mom and trying to find time to work. And now homeschool my kids due to, due to the pandemic, you know, my kids can't go to school. So I'm homeschooling a first grader, a second grader and tutoring a ninth grader. Yeah, and, that's you know, a lot. I'm doing all of this <laughs> on my own. And, you know, it would be a lot easier if, you know, I, if we could, have Alex home and helping me and, you know, just not even having the fear of what's going to happen next from one moment to the next. Um, it's, it's been very stressful. I've, my doctors have been telling me, you know, you need to eliminate stress. You need to try to take it from somewhere. And, you know, I've, I've taken it from about every area I can without just, you know, not being able to do anything. And it's, it's really hard. This is such a hard case, and it's so hard for, for your family to be separated in the way that it is. And, and Sarah, I know you had a week of action in this case. That was all last week. Um, what were you hoping to accomplish with those actions? Yeah, so I think um, part of, there's a couple goals that we tried to accomplish in the week of action. I think the first is really just to... Um, honor the sacrifice, the very public sacrifice that Alex um, and his family have made um, in order to fight for what's right. Um, And so I think being able to just surround them with um, affirmation and love and comfort and support um, at a time that none of us thought we would arrive to, right? Three Mm -hmm. years is and now over 1,100 days, right? That's far too long. Um, I think that the sort of second component of the week of action is to um, sort of bring people into the, dare I say, campaign side of things, right? Getting Alex Tanking Sanctuary sort of was not the campaign. That's a tool so that we can fight for justice, which looks like Carly and Alex having the power and capacity to make decisions for their own family and live the kind of life that they they want to live, right? Mm-hmm. Not being told um, what is who they can love and how how that love needs to look like. So um, part of the week of action was spent on um, understanding laws and policies, understanding root causes, and then finishing looking at what strategies we're going to um, pursue in this third year, so that folks um, who feel right, a lot of us feel this is bad, this is sad, this is ugly, this isn't fair. 
how do we turn those feelings into concrete actions such that the people who are in power, who have tools right now um, that could make this right are choose and are choosing not to do so, how, how we can get to those people so that this family can be put back together so that then we can carry um, carry this work to the broader to, to the broader scale. And Carly, after this week of action, are you feeling a renewed sense of hope that that maybe there can be some sort of positive resolution to this case? Um, well, hope um, definitely means um, a lot different to me now than it used to. Mm-hmm. Um, but seeing the new support from from people, um, yes, um, I know that that we'll continue to gather the support from our community and others around us. Um, but yeah, I, I am hopeful. Well, Carly Garcia, I want to thank you so much for joining us, and I wish the best of luck to you and to Alex. Thank you. And Sarah John, Executive Director of the St. Louis Interfaith Committee on Latin America, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. We have put um, additional resources up on our website. So if folks um, are feeling like they want to support Carly and Alex or looking for ways to get involved, they can certainly find that at stl-ifcla.org. Okay, and we will also make sure to have that on our website, which is stlpublicradio.org. Podcast episodes of St. Louis on the Air are available at stlpublicradio.org. Or you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, the Stitcher Podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts. St. Louis on the Air is produced by Evie Hempel and Lara Hamden, with production assistance from Aaron Dorr. The senior producer is Emily Woodbury, and the executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Fenstein. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.